Romans chapter one. And I do, hopefully you've gotten a little bit of background in your small groups, but I do want to make sure that we all understand where we're coming from. Romans is a letter written to a church in Rome by a guy named Paul who used to, this is about 25 years after Jesus was crucified, and Paul was this devout Jew called a Pharisee who really hated the new believers of Jesus who were going around and saying that the guy that the Jews just killed was actually the son of God and the Messiah that the Jewish people were supposed to have recognized. And that's a very offensive message to the Jewish people at that time. And so Paul was a persecutor of these people that were believing that Jesus was the Christ. So he was going around persecuting them, trying to shut this message down. And then God met him in the form of the risen Jesus on a road. And hopefully you and some of your groups have read some of this story. But he basically said, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus. I am God. And Paul became a believer in the way and in Jesus. And then he felt called. Um, God called and commissioned him to bring that powerful message now to the ends of the earth and specifically to the Gentile people who um, were the Greeks and were um, not of Jewish descent. Um, and so he's traveling around now in little groups and starting churches all around the area, spreading the message. And he goes and he teaches, and then he leaves the church behind, and they kind of themselves start a fellowship of believers. And then he goes to another place, and he writes letters to them to encourage them, and that's how that's happening. So Rome is one of the places where a little church got started, and it was mostly Greeks, mostly people who were not of Jewish heritage, and they are now accepting this message that God has come for all, that Jesus is the Son of God here to save all. And what happened, I need to not go too long into this, but what happened is that there was a small contingent of Jewish people who were also part of that church, but they'd been gone for a little while. They'd been exiled, and then they come back to this church, and they're like, hey, you guys are doing traditions and things a little different than how we've always grown up in them, and the Messiah was ours to begin with. So there's a little bit of tension and frustration going on between these two groups within this one church who is supposed to be the way and the believers of Jesus. So what I don't want you to miss here, and what I think we'll see all through Romans is this theme of this message, this powerful message of the gospel going out into like all of the world and reaching all of these new groups of people with its message. Um, and I think that like the beauty of that narrative we're going to see kind of woven through. So if you'll open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to chapter one, I hear Paul talking about kind of a couple things in chapter one, and I just want to go through and get kind of our themes down. Um, first of all, he introduces himself, and he tells them why he's writing. He tells them why he has a right to write to them, why he feels compelled to write to them and to preach the gospel. And then another theme that I see is he is talking about the gospel, and he's calling it this message not of like a set of beliefs that they should all agree to, that they just need to like hear, understand, believe, and then they're good. But he's more referring to this theme, and you're going to see it through the whole book of Romans, of the gospel being this, this like power, 
this like force that comes in and it's got like transformative, like it's alive. Like it has this transformative power to change people and things. And we're going to see through all of Romans what the gospel does. That's really the biggest theme of Romans. The gospel does this and then the gospel reveals this and then the gospel creates this and it does this in our lives. Like it's this very transformative power. So I think that's important. I think you saw in your deeper reflections in the first week, if you had time to do them, that if we think that the gospel is just like something we should understand, then there would be no reason for Paul to come back to Rome because they already heard the message that Jesus died for their sins and they can, you know, be friends with God now. They already believed that. So if he's saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, well then why if they already believe it? Clearly he believes, and he's going to be talking about in Romans, this gospel message has continual significance and impact in your life. It changes something as it continues to be preached. So there's that theme. And the first thing that we see that he starts talking about that the gospel does is that it reveals the righteousness of God. And that's where we're going to kind of be in chapter one is these themes of righteousness and unrighteousness according to God and what that even looks like, what that means. Um, So I want us to both look at like the overarching theme of the chapter and understand what Paul is talking about and what he's saying to them. I also, each week when we gather here, and as we're studying this whole year, I, I do want us to understand the big picture. I feel like there's real significance and importance in that. I also want us to get small and personal, because otherwise, what are we doing here? So I want us to look and be like, what does this mean to me today? Do I see anything in here that is true of me today, that I relate to, that is calling me to be impacted by the power of the gospel in a transformative way. So we're going to look at that today. So um, like I said, the first thing is this theme of righteousness that Paul says the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And the interesting thing about the word righteousness is we think of it in terms of perfection, right? We think of it in terms, and that's a very Greek understanding of the word perfection. They would look at something and they would be like, it's perfect. It's flawless. It's beautiful. It has no cracks. It's perfect. And so we tend to think of it like that, like, oh, she's perfect. She doesn't do anything wrong. But Paul is going to draw on a more Hebrew understanding of the word righteousness. The way that it was used in the beginning and the way that the Hebrews would have understood righteousness is in a much more relational context. When they said something was good, like when God said he created the world and it was good, he used a word called tav meod, which means forceful goodness. And it's talking about the relationship between things that is right and good and functioning in its proper intent. And that is when something is righteous, when the relationship between it and everything else is functioning like it was intended, that is righteous, that is good, that is perfect. So that was the Hebrew understanding of it. And um, so we, Paul is going to draw on kind of that understanding a little bit more. And he's about to show how ever since Adam and Eve... There's been something unrighteous, something broken, something not perfect between God's creation and its creator. And that is the 
unrighteousness. There's a disorder happening. It's not as God created it. It's not as he intended it. And he's calling it unrighteous. And we're going to see what happens in that. So open with me. I forgot that I have this. Oh, there we go. Um, to chapter 1, verse 18, and that's where we're going to start here, in Paul's description of what happened, what went wrong. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul is making the argument here that it's self-evident that there is a creator, that there is something bigger than us and that we are not the beginning of it, that we are not the start. There's a couple different ways that um, we talk about or theologians talk about how we really do have a self-evident awareness of something bigger and outside of ourselves. One of them is like a moral awareness. Like we all have this sense in us of what is just and unjust, right? And there, it's very popular to say, well, I decide. I decide what's right and I just know it in my core and you decide for you what's right and you decide what, what's right for you. But if you take that down to a very simple idea like, well, I decide that it's right that I really like your shirt, Heidi. And so tomorrow I'm just gonna go in your house and I'm gonna take your shirt. And I'm just gonna act like it's mine because it feels right to me. It just feels like it fits and I just want it. Or you see it with little kids. I wanted that toy and it feels right to me that he took it and I felt like it was mine and so I'm just gonna go take it and walk away. And you're gonna see immediately the human heart and understanding and attitude is not cool with that. They're like, wait, that's wrong. You can't just do whatever you want. That was mine. It belongs to me. You can't just come in and say, just because I want to do this thing, even though it impacts you, it doesn't matter because I'm deciding for me what's right. So there's this moral awareness. There's your sense for us of a moral code. It might be a different moral code, but it's, it's something that, that tells us, wait, no, it's, it's outside of me and you. It's bigger than that. You just can't do that. That's just not right. And if there is something outside of us that determines right and wrong, it ultimately means that we are not the beginning, that there is something that came first that imposed that upon us, that that was instilled in us when we were created. So that's like a moral awareness that Paul might be talking about too. Um, uh, well, in fact, you see it later in Romans 1 where he says, though they knew what they ought not to do, they did it anyways. So that's what he's appealing to when he says that. They knew. There was something in them that knew this isn't right. And then the other one that you see him kind of lay out here in, in verse 18 is this awareness like of creation. That when we look out at the world, when we look up at the stars, when we see a baby born and we're like, there's a whole human where there didn't used to be a human or we feel love like surging and we're like, whoa, this is bigger than me. This feeling that I have for this other human being, this is outside me. This is bigger than me. It feels out of control, out of my control. That's appealing to something bigger than us. And Paul's saying, we all have that. And not everybody will have the name of Jesus to attribute to that. But there is this sense, I have 
met very few people who don't think there's something bigger, who don't believe. I was just, we have a good friend who um, is the mom of one of my daughter's friends, and we've been talking a lot about faith lately because her daughter is interested in it. And so we went out to drinks, and we were talking about it, and she's like, I, she had come to church just one week, and she heard Ryan use the word supernatural. And she was like, I can't believe he said supernatural in church. I mean, like, I I believe in something supernatural, but I thought that was not what you guys would call it. And I think that everybody believes there's something bigger and supernatural going on here outside of ourselves. That's what Paul is appealing to, and he's saying they knew it. They had a gut instinct, but here's what they did. Instead of acknowledging it, they suppressed the truth. So suppress is different than not knowing. Suppressing is knowing and then hiding the fact that we know it or ignoring the fact that we know it or forgetting the fact that we know it. I think, I was thinking about suppressing the truth and I think that I see my kids do this a lot. My, one of my twins is a terrible liar. And so whenever he's done something wrong, it's all over his face and we can be like, Cooper... What happened here? And he's all immediately in giggles and laughing. He cannot lie for the life of them. Another one of my children. Oh, my goodness, I'm afraid for him because I don't, well, him and her. I think a lot of my children can do this. They come in, and you cannot tell what is true. It's like they almost believe it themselves. Like, one of my kids came in the other day. Can I have this snack? Did you have one already? No, I totally didn't. That was the other Kid, totally didn't. And then I'm like thinking, 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 wait, I completely saw you eating a snack like two seconds ago. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I thought you meant, you know, or whatever. But it was so disturbing and alarming to me how convincing he was for those three seconds. It was really like he believed it for himself. And I see that with my kids and I see that with us. We can lie to ourselves. We can get really good at suppressing the truth to the point where we almost think that we believe a different reality, right? So that's a silly example, but my first question to us for this morning that I just want us to think about is how do we, or how do I, suppress the truth that I am created? That there's something bigger outside of me, that because I'm created, there is a creator, how do I do that? And I think these questions, if you want to talk about them in your small group, sorry, small group leaders, I didn't email them out to you before, but I don't think you can answer it in a quick second. So write it down and give it some thought. I tried to. I think that a lot of times we do it out of pride. We go, well, I'm, you know, we just get self-important. We get busy and we just start moving along with our days and somehow that suppresses the truth that there's anything else that matters except my agenda. That's a way that we just move on with our lives and things, we just, we elevate other things and we go, I'm thinking about this a lot and I'm worried about this and I'm concerned about this and somehow all of a sudden the truth is suppressed and that thing is the biggest thing and what that means is that we are the biggest thing. Um, I also think, I've been thinking about this one a lot lately for myself and I think it's included a new kind of practice in my own spiritual life but I'm not sure it's intentional all the time that I suppress the truth that I'm the created and not the creator, but I think it's laziness. I think I just go throughout my day and I don't take time to let my view of God be made bigger. 
I don't take the time to sit in awe and wonder of what is around me. I don't notice. I'm not mindful. I'm not slow. I'm not aware. I'm not purposeful about looking. And the thing that made me notice that, um, or one of the things that made this really come to life to me was our nurture night this last Friday night as we're laying there under the stars and I am looking up at this vast sky, there was time created for me and all of a sudden the truth comes bubbling up. The truth that I have suppressed that there's something bigger out there, it's just like all over me and I'm just overwhelmed, right? So I do think that acknowledging our smallness, taking time to look and see I have this like phrase that I feel like God has rung in my head over the last year. Slow is the invitation to see. And I think that it does require a little bit of intentional slowness and looking. And then all of a sudden, that truth isn't quite as suppressed anymore. Mission trips do this. When we go to the other side of the world and we see all of this poverty and all of this stuff going on, all of a sudden we go, oh, my life and way of being is not the center of the world, right? There is a whole big world of stuff going on. I am not the center. Um, so that's how they suppress the truth, and I want us to think about that. And then it goes on to say, even though this is plain and they know it, they suppress it, and here's what they do instead. Let's go to verse 21. I'm going to have to go faster here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. So what begins to happen in our hearts as we suppress the truth and we do not intentionally, mindfully acknowledge the creator God? They push it down and they push the implications of that down. Because think about it, if we are not the creator and there is something bigger, there are implications to that, right? Um, so they push it down and they trade it out for this lie that they are the center, that they are the beginning that they are the starting point that then reorders everything in their life and what matters around them. That's the lie, that they're now somehow the inventor and the creator of their own purposes, of their own fulfillment, of their own, um, I lost the other word that I was gonna say. <laughs> um, and they start, they start functioning off of that lie and it creates disorder. So when you turn around from the true knowledge of God, it means cutting ourselves off from any ultimately accurate understanding of the world around us. When there's no God bigger than you, you get a distorted reality of what is the biggest thing here in this life. This is what idolatry is. Idolatry is finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to those created things. It's saying this thing that's small and created and here within this world, whether it be me or this thing that I want, this is the purpose of life. This is the meaning of life. This, this thing will allow fulfillment for me and so I'm giving it ultimate significance. It is the thing I must have to have meaning and fulfillment in my life. And then we attribute our ultimate allegiance to that and I go, that is what my life is about. 
I will go after that thing. I will need that thing. I will want that thing. Um, so my question for us is how do we exchange the suppressed truth for a lie? Oops, there we go. Nope, there's idolatry. How do I exchange the truth of God for a lie and make something else the object of my worship? Um, A.W. Tozer, who I'm going to be kind of quoting a lot, <laughs> he, he writes in his book, The Pursuit of God, let the average man be put to the proof on the question, here, I'll put it up there, on the question of who or what is above and his true position will be exposed. Let him be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition, God and self, God and human love, and God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However the man may protest, the proof is in the choices he makes day after day throughout his life. So I think it can be a lot of things that become the ultimate significance for us that help us suppress that truth and reorder our lives around something else. But the bottom line is it is disordered. It is out of the proper order and it becomes idolatry. It can be family. It can be safety and comfort. It can even be my own happiness. And this is the one that I was thinking about. Like, I, I pretty much put me at the beginning. The lie for me is that God isn't safe and that if I were to give him all of my worship and allegiance and significance, that he'd probably crush me with it <laughs> because he doesn't care about my own happiness and my own happiness is supreme. What I need in my life is happiness. I need to be fulfilled and I need to be okay. And if I'm not, then I don't even know, but I can't, I can't get there. Um, and the lie is that I know better what I need for fulfillment and for happiness. And that if I could be in control and in charge, I would do a good job of ordering things. I would do a good job of making myself happy. The problem with that is that I'm a created being. It's like a cup saying, I know what my purpose is. It's to, <laughs> sorry, it fails me because it's not actually written in here. I can't continue it out. <laughs> be a fork, Peggy says. <laughs> But a created thing's glory is in doing the thing it was created to do, right? That's when the, the created thing actually is shown for all of its glory, when it fulfills its purpose. If I, am, if I am the decider of my own purpose and fulfillment and what will bring me, I will be totally lost. It's a completely disordered view. I need the thing that created me to say, you were made for this. This is where you will find ultimate significance, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate happiness and joy. Um, so we ask ourselves that question, how do we suppress the truth and in, in so doing, exchange it out for a lie and what are we lying to ourselves about? Let's think about that this week because what we're going to see is when things get disordered, when they're out of the proper order, unrighteous, everything breaks. Everything falls apart. It doesn't function like it was supposed to. It's like, a, it's like the clockmaker analogy who's like, I made the clock. 
I know every single piece and how it's supposed to function all together. So if one little piece is like, it doesn't work for me, there's no clock I made myself, and I want to go this way, everything goes nuts. Everything breaks and falls apart, and that's what we're seeing here. And that's what Paul's about to describe in the famous verses, in the verses that everybody loves to point out in Romans to say how everybody's doing something wrong and wanting to call that thing the unrighteous thing. But the unrighteousness is the disordering. It's already happened. So this is the effects of the unrighteousness. This is what happens later, and we just raise it up to its improper spot. And those of you who were here on Sunday morning, Ryan got to talk about this verse, so I'm just going to skip right past it because I just don't want to give it undue significance. So we're going to go verse 24, 26, and 28. Let's see. So that, all these words, look at this, therefore, and because they didn't, and for this reason, here's what happened. God gave them up to the lust in their heart, lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies and themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones, things that weren't the created design. Verse 28, they, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Notice here, as I read these words, that they are all relational. These are all words of what they're doing to each other that they ought not do. These are how this relationship between humans was not intended to work. They are gossips. They're slanderers. They're haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know why that happened? Because they exchanged the truth that God is the creator for a lie that they are of ultimate significance. And when we are of ultimate significance and somebody else gets a little bit of significance, I feel like you just harmed me. You just did something that I can't have you do because my allegiance is to my significance. It's to my worship. And so I gossip and I slander and I try to cut you down and I'm jealous of you and I envy you. And I go and I stir all this stuff up because I need you to be small because in my world, my lie is that I am of ultimate significance and I need worship to be happy and to be fulfilled. So they start treating each other terribly and cutting each other down and exchanging all of the wrong order of how they're meant to relate. Again, A.W. Tozer says, the whole course of the life is upset by failure to put God where he belongs. We exalt ourselves instead of God, and the curse follows. Literally every relationship begins to function in brokenness, and that is what Paul is saying is happening in the Romans, and that is very, very, very true for the rest of time since and before. What we'll see in the whole theme of the Bible is that ever since Genesis 3, Adam and Eve knew there was a creator God, knew they were created, but they suppressed that truth and were lied to. They were told, you can also be like God. You can decide for yourself what you want. Don't listen to this other voice over here. You can decide for yourself. So they suppressed the truth. They exchanged it out for the lie they were being told, and they wanted to be like God. 
and everything broke. And from then on, you see cycle after cycle after cycle in the Bible, all the way up till Romans and all the way up until now of people exchanging this truth for a lie and experiencing brokenness. So when it says the wrath of God is unfolding, that's what the word revealed means. It's like it's unfolding, it's coming, it's being seen, it's happening. It's like this force coming through. The wrath of God is unfolding towards all this disorder. It's just all breaking because it's not working like it was supposed to. It's like this unleashed storm cloud, this tidal wave of brokenness that we're seeing happen throughout the Bible. And it keeps washing over the earth in pain and strife. Um, When everyone runs around in this world, back in Romans and now, acting like they're not part of a bigger story, that their story centers around them and that their smaller story is the story of ultimate significance, they just start bumping into each other and competing with each other and all the relationships are out of order and everything breaks because we hide in these small realities where I am of ultimate significance and then I worship small things and everybody's got their own little realities and worlds going on instead of being unified under this greater, bigger reality and story where there is a creator who set it all in motion and deserves to be lifted up to that rightful place. So, oh, okay. I'm going to try to wrap us up quick, but I have a clip for you. And I don't know if it'll help. Story helps me a lot. Okay, you already saw it. So it's always a good morning when you get to watch the never-ending story, right? Like, It just can't go wrong. So here's the thing. Let me set this up really quick. If you are a one-to-one ratio, I need to understand how every analogy and every single extrapolation of that analogy fits. You're going to not, this isn't going to help you because there's so much of this that does not have to do with the Bible. Okay. So don't try to take it too far and be like, oh, and I get it. Like the flying dragon is this and the da-da-da is this. Okay, what I want you to hear in this story, who hasn't seen the never-ending story? That would be like a shaming question. Okay, it's fine. I love you anyways, but go home and rent it and watch it. Um, Okay, here's the thing. Sebastian, here's all you need to know for this. Sebastian is this little boy, and he is in his own smaller reality. And he has been told that he needs to keep his feet on the ground and be very logical and rational And stop thinking that there's something bigger out there. Stop thinking that there's something bigger going on that he's a part of. Because he's kind of like a dreamer in that way. Already, you can't take the analogy too far. And like, you're you're just going to mess yourself up. She's not God. Don't like, take it too far. (laughs) She's really cute though, right? Um, I used to think she was so beautiful when I was little. I'm like, okay. Um, So Sebastian is reading this story. He's reading this fantasy story that he's not supposed to be reading, and suddenly he's found himself in it. And and because he has decided, and the whole world in this story has decided that there is not something bigger, that it's all just about their smaller realities, everything in the world out here is breaking and falling apart. And what it needs is his acknowledgement of a bigger story, of a bigger reality. And so you're gonna see things starting to fall apart in the story, it's called the nothingness. And what it needs to be put in its rightful order is acknowledgement that there is something bigger out there. That's like the smallest part that I want you to take from it. And then just sit back and I wish you had popcorn, sorry. Go ahead, Mallory.
advertisement and don't worry about it. Skip ad, skip ad. You can skip it. She's trying to find it. <laughs> Sorry guys. Oh no, it's going to be one of those like after four ads, you may your video will resume. He doesn't understand that he's the one who has the power to stop it. He simply can't imagine that one little boy could be that important. Is it really me? to give me a new name. He's already chosen it. He just has to call it out. But it's only a story. It's not real. It's only a story. Those of you who watched it as a kid, did you ever try to figure out what name he called? Oh. No. <laughs> okay, so I don't know how much of that translates for you. I'm a very like narrative, story-driven person, and I sat in my house and just cried watching that. You can laugh at me, but here's the thing. I resonate with his struggle, his fight. He is afraid to acknowledge that there is something bigger than him out there. Because that has implications. And I recognize that in myself. I am afraid to give up control. I am afraid to recognize that there is something else that designed me and wants to order my life for me. Um, I, I like identify with that battle. So A.W. Tozer says, <laughs> I told you, just get the book. I hope it is clear that there is logic behind God's claim to preeminence that place is his by every right in heaven or earth. While we take to ourselves the place that is his, the whole course of our lives is out of joint. Nothing will or can restore order till our hearts make the great decision. God shall be exalted. So chapter one, Paul ends with like a pretty depressing story, and he's actually going to continue it into chapter two and a little bit of chapter three. And kind of show them how, continue to make the case that everything is broken. Everything is falling apart because God is not elevated to his rightful place, and so there is just disorder. But I want to end with a little bit of encouragement because Paul says, 
right in that connecting part, right before he starts talking about God, the unrighteousness, he says, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel to you because it reveals the righteousness of God. In the message of the gospel that Jesus has come, it reveals, it unfolds and shows the righteousness of God. So there's another way that righteousness can be understood when you translate that, that word and how Paul is using it, because he uses it eight times in Romans. And what he's saying in that for, you'll just, you can trust me <laughs> for the sake of time, is um, one of the ways that it can be translated is righteousness done by God, meaning it's more like a verb. It's more like a saving activity. This, this reordering, this putting everything back how it was intended to be is an activity that God is doing. That is the righteousness of God being revealed and coming. You hear that kind of righteousness be described in all of the prophets when they say that God's righteousness is coming. Isaiah 51 says, my righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. It's going forth and it's coming. Uh, 46, 13 says, I bring my righteousness. It's not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel is my glory. It's coming. This like saving activity of God is coming. So we've got the wrath of God that is everything is breaking because of unrighteousness. And now because of the message of the gospel that Jesus is coming, the righteousness of God is coming and has come and is reordering everything, is putting everything back to the way that it should be. And so when we are called the righteousness of God, we are a part of that saving activity now. We are invited to join that putting right, restoring back to the way that it should. So as you're reading those themes in Romans this year, think of it as so much more dynamic than a definition. These are powerful forces in a narrative that is unfolding still today of like unrighteousness breaking everything and God's righteousness coming and restoring it and inviting us to be a part of that story. Okay, so my last question that you can go off into your small groups is, this is telling me, when I just read Romans chapter one this last two weeks, this is telling me something that's true about the world and about God. It's at least saying it says it's true and I have to do something with that. I have to decide if I believe that. It's telling me what is at work in the world, what's happening right now. Do I believe it? Do I want that power at work in my life? Do I want to surrender to it? I don't even remember exactly what I said. Have I named God as exalted and restored his right order so that everything else can fall into place? Let's think about that this week and in our small groups and just be honest with ourselves and each other. I'll pray for us.